0: Welcome to the Synergy Autism Podcast. My name is Barbara Avila, and today I am sharing with you a conversation between Dr. Christy preddy Franzak, Dr. Daniel Siegel, and myself. Dr. Siegel shares his wisdom about the importance of secure attachments for children, and we discuss the potential challenges, yet importance of these secure attachments for children with autism. By ensuring a solid foundation for development, by helping each child feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure, we set them up for ideal learning and engaging successfully. Listen in. I think you'll find it as interesting as I did.
1: Synergy Artism Podcast. First of all, thanks for having me here with you. Um, you know, these issues. That Tina Payne Bryson and I talk about in The Power of Showing Up are really driven by a scientific understanding of the mind and the importance of really professionals who work with the mind. So it could be early educators, it could be um, mental health professionals of all sorts, um, people in the medical field, it could be people, just people who <laughs> And I'm wondering what their mind is. So they come from a field of interpersonal neurobiology, which is this broad synthesis of all the disciplines of science into one framework. And then, you know, in the academic textbooks I write, you know, you see a deep dive like in The Developing Mind or stuff like that or Pocket Guide to, to interpersonal neurobiology. And, you know, I've edited now over 70 textbooks that other people have written in that series and with Tina, what we do is we try to translate that approach of interpersonal neurobiology, deeply, deeply synthesizing all the sciences into accessible ideas and expressions of the science that are practical for everyday work, whether you're a parent or a therapist working with kids or adults or whatever. So that's the framework just to understand. And, you know, I'm trained as an attachment researcher. And for me, the four S's were just a way to really encapsulate the deep science of early child relationships and how they um, can be understood. So the goal, in a sense, of attachment for all of us as mammals is to protect our children and allow them to survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. Now that's been going on for 200 million years. Then we have, you know, whether you talk about it as a few hundred thousand years or a few million years, depending on when you think of human beings starting, we have this interesting change where not only do we have attachment because we're mammals, we're primates, but we also have something called alloparenting. So we have more than one attachment figure. Mm -hmm. We can have a primary attachment figure, it's often the mother, but we're built to be raised in community. So that's the first thing to say is that we're incredibly social creatures. And part of that relational essence of our being is that we can have a map of the mind of others first. And that's what alloparenting really invited us to do is to look at another person and say, Oh, where's their attention? Where's their awareness? Where's their intention? Those are all aspects of the mind. So when we map that out, I call it mind sight. Other people call it theory of mind or um, reflective function or mentalization or mind mindedness or psychological mindedness all those get at the gist of how do you know another person has an inner subjective life called the mind and how do you know your own right so let's just call it for our discussion mind sight so you make these mind sight maps of others for empathy that is the gateway for compassion and for insight so when you have a map of your own inner mental life of feelings thoughts, meanings, stuff like that, intentions, hopes, dreams, longings, desires. Okay, so when you take the field of attachment research, what we've been able to show, my colleagues and I, is that when you see the mind of a child, in our terms, we'd say when you use mindsight, you have a child that thrives, mm-hmm. that develops secure attachment. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges to that is in the developmental challenge of autism, and people back in the day, erroneously, that is, they're wrong, when they said, oh, parents are causing kids to have autism. Now we know that's absolutely not true, and in fact, my research mentor, Marion Sigmund, she was able to show that kids with autism have basically the normal distribution of attachment categories, um, meaning that their attachment system is perfectly intact. Their behavior may be atypical, but their need for connection is absolutely there. So we'll talk about that in a moment, what it means, but it's an important research finding that Marion Sigmund uh, really discovered, and it was published in 1991, I believe, maybe 92. And the issue there is that you can have other issues going on that impact relationality, even if it's not what we might call the attachment system, which isn't really exactly a system. It has three interwoven things that we'll talk about in a moment. So when you take all that, you say, well, how do I remember any of this stuff? Well, the first thing to say is you want to remember you're aiming for secure attachment versus non-secure attachment or what the researchers call insecure. And secure attachment for a kid, which happens in about 65% of the population, is a way that they develop resilience. They develop insight into themselves, empathy for others, they can collaborate with others, they can regulate their emotions. They can think clearly under stress. They can meet their intellectual potential. All these cool things come along with secure attachment. So it's ideally what we can give. Of course, there's genetics and other things that shape a child and things that happen in utero, like exposure to toxins and things like that. So you have lots of things affecting, for example, the brain's development before the baby's born that influence temperament. And then on top of that, you have experience, and that's what we're talking about, about attachment. So those two, it's not either or, it's not a versus, it's and. There's the nature, which we really mean is the constitutional features of the brain, mm-hmm. and there's nurture, which are the experiences primarily with attachment figures, parents, others in the community, or, you know, teachers or therapists, people like that. So you want security, and then the other S's, which can go over one by one, or how do you get secure attachment and and that's what the other S's are all about?
2: And so as we think about those and let's so that the four S's are safe And then soothed well seen soothed and then you have a secure attachment exactly so safe, Seen soothed secure. Right. Yes, so As you both think about this, and so maybe Barb, if you wanna comment about what Dan has said about um, some of our misperceptions around children with autism, but also thinking about um, the place where young children are developing in, maybe it was well before Race to the Top, but even the name Race to the Top doesn't really, to me, align with the priorities of, are you safe? Have I prioritized that I see you and I'm fully present? And is my number one job to soothe you? It sort of seems like maybe I should do letter identification, counting, and compliance. So I kind of want to go both directions at once. So Barb, if you want to say anything about what Dan said about autism, and then both of you talk a little bit about this age of accountability and how we can find um, an interconnection to the four S's.
0: I think what I find really interesting in autism is that there's a few things. One is that as soon as they have the label of autism, for some reason we forget that they're kids first. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that we need to um, really think about attachment, for example, or mind sight and the development and things like that. And we take that off the table when we think about autism for some reason. And so I really like the idea of the revolution because we need to take that back and remember that these kids need that as well, if they have, and maybe even more so than the rest, of us because they need that foundation to then um because they have a compromised neurological system possibly um that and then also what you just said of 65 of us have a secure attachment and 35 don't um and if uh mary sigmund had talked about that in autism it's the same then we need to be thinking about that 35 percent of kids with autism don't have a secure attachment either am, am i
1: so right, not, well, that's right, exactly? sure. yeah, absolutely.
0: And so, I, I feel like that those are probably a lot of the kids that we're talking about are ones that mm-hmm. are struggling with both things, but we just call it this autism and we just call it these troubling behaviors instead of looking at the foundation of a secure attachment being first and foremost.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting um, way of looking at it, Barb. And I think that, um You know, when you think about safety, for example, um, the two parts of it that would relate, I think in a deep way to um, maybe what some kids with autism experience when they don't have secure attachment is the parent of course is to protect the child, keep the Mm -hmm. child safe. But the second part of safe is that the parent, as best they can, is not the source of terror. Um, And in any of these things that we talk about, if there's a break in that, a rupture in that, you want to make a repair. So there's no such thing as perfect parenting. Always begin again and make a reconnection, apologize and really try to set things up again. So people listening should know there's no such thing as perfect parenting. And there is a science to the general direction you want to go. So with safety, if you are the source of terror, so let's say there's a parent that doesn't understand that, their particular child is having sensory integration challenges which we should talk about they're having emotion regulation challenges which we should talk about and they're for a number of different reasons having mind sight challenges mm-hmm. sensing their own mind and the mind of others for reasons we should talk about uh, but for all all um those combinations that kind of explains autism actually those three things being difficult um yeah. And then the the parent who doesn't know that is at his or her wit's end. And so now they're screaming out of frustration. Well, when you scream out of frustration, you may be venting your anger or your confusion. We get it. This isn't to blame you, but it's terrifying for your kid. And that is what's called a biological paradox because one circuit in your child's brain says, oh my God, I'm terrified. I should get away from the terror. But another circuit in your same child says, I'm being terrified. I should go to my attachment figure for soothing and safety. But you are the source of terror. So they can't take their one body and have one network say, go toward my attachment figure. The other network says, go away from my attachment figure because they're the one causing the terror. So they collapse. And Dan,
2: can you talk a little bit about that? I know I keep saying about this age of accountability, but so many teachers are hyper aroused and so anxious about kindergarten readiness that I do feel like they are coming across to children as overly directive or overly rushed or not attuned. So what do we say to educators? um, Which can
0: I expand on that too? Because part of what you said, Dan, is um, I think children with autism have uh, sensory systems that are potentially different than you and I, or, you know, neurotypical. And so they may perceive even being rushed or um, a a strong tone of voice or tense or whatever, all as they might be hypersensitive to that. And so there's from a systemic standpoint, if that makes sense. That's what, how I think about it. So it doesn't have to be necessarily somebody screaming at them. It can right. just be
2: some of these it's other things. But there's too there many transitions, uh, a lot of verbal, yeah. a lot of directions and corrections that are well intended.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so that's where the other S's come in handy. I mean,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, it's one thing to be terrified by the behavior of a caregiver. The other is that you're not seen by them. And that leads mm-hmm. to a different kind of attachment Adaptation the first is a disorganization because it's a collapse in any organized strategy that's possible This if you're not being seen and your behavior is just being managed that leads to a different kind of experience sometimes called avoidant attachment where um, You don't really feel known by your caregiver and that's a different sort of outcome and then the third is you know with, with soothing you know, if there's a, uh, a caregiver who's, as you're more, uh, uh, as you're talking about this more being present here, um, when your emotions are so overwhelmed that you can't tune into the person in front of you, you're basically intruding your emotional state onto theirs. So mm-hmm. if it's a young child that you're doing it to, it's really confusing. Maybe sometimes you're available, sometimes you're not, you know, yeah. they're feeling, you know, hungry and you're feeling anxious and so is your anxiety their anxiety or is it your anxiety i mean it gets very confusing and that's called ambivalent attachment so we have ambivalence on the one hand with inconsistency and intrusion we have avoidance when you're just not seen and a person's just monitoring your behavior not sensing your mind and we have disorganization when there's you know the experience of terror all those are different forms of insecure attachment and uh, when we look at the um, issues that are present likely with kids with um, uh, all sorts of learning differences, um, I think some of it starts becoming clear, and maybe it'd be good to just highlight that briefly if you think yeah so yeah so what, I, what yeah, I would perfect. say is this, you know in my own journey uh, you know to understand the mind, um, I was really kind of shocked at um In in the field I was in, psychiatry, there was no definition of the mind. I was then trained in psychological research as an attachment researcher. There was no definition of the mind in the field of psychology. I then started teaching broadly as a training director to people in social work and, you know, educational therapy, you know, physical therapy, music therapy, and all those forms of therapy. There was no definition of the mind. And and this was uh, basically being a teacher of mental health. Well, how can you have a field of mental health when no one's saying what the mental is? How could you possibly say what the health is? So it was just really weird. I mean, I don't know what other word to use. It was like it was just so strange. And so, for the last I don't know uh, almost thirty years now, I've been just on this quest to take that word mind and its derivatives like mental, um, and say, well, what is that thing really? Mm-hmm. And then once there could be a scientifically grounded proposal on what that thing was, even though no one still is even talking about it, um, say what a healthy mind is. So that's all the writing I do in every book I write with Tina or all the books I write on my own, you know, are all about taking a stance and saying this is what I think the mind is. So what I'm going to say is from this perspective, you can call it a mindset perspective or an interpersonal neurobiology perspective, whatever you want to call it. um, But it's not like it's, embraced by Many if any other people. So here's what I think is going on with the mind The mind I think is an emergent property, which is a math term. It arises from energy flow Mm -hmm. And that energy flow can happen in your brain for sure, but it happens throughout your whole body Which is where emotions come from by the way and it happens in your relationships with other people and your relationships with nature Mm -hmm. so Energy flow is not limited by skull or skin. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is certain patterns of energy like the sounds I'm saying now have Symbolic value that we can share with each other. Like if I say ocean so that was air molecules moving from this body to your ears and it was flowing through the medium of air and then it got translated into electrical signals through this computer. But anyway, it comes out as air to your ears. And the movement of air molecules in a certain pattern for ocean is basically energy that's air molecules moving. That's what sound is. That then gets translated into electrochemical energy flow within your brain. So all of it is energy flow. Now, if I go, you know, That doesn't have symbolic value. That's just pure energy. It's like a hose allowing water to stream through. It's like a conduit. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes it's a constructive process, like ocean. Like if I say notion, you know, that's a very similar sound pattern, still using the same energy, you know, form, sound, you know, air molecules moving, but notion with the N in front of it, and ocean are completely different meanings. Mm-hmm. But if you have a learning difference, mm-hmm. I think what it is is your ability to extract the formation of energy, which is energy in formation. That's where we get information. I that's really what it means. Uh-huh. You know, that you can't extract the formation of a symbolic value that we call information from the airwaves, and 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 people can be different. Now maybe there's a typical way of commonly extracting ocean and you get it that it's a big body of water surrounding us, you know, um, and notion is an idea or a gist, you know, and you get that. But for a kid who doesn't get it, and they're in a room where people are saying, I went for a walk by the ocean and I had this notion, and they're completely lost. Mm-hmm. So they're not extracting symbolic value from energy patterns that are basically one way of the many ways we connect with each other. So when you realize how profoundly relational we are, it comes from sharing symbolic energy patterns or what's called information. So we use a fundamental phrase, energy and information, because it changes. We call it flow. And my interns and I I had 18 interns work with me to revise this last textbook the developing mind to its third edition we couldn't find anyone who talks like this even after doing this for almost 30 years it is whatever but but we're sticking at it because once you go to the energy and information flow if you then take the three things we mentioned earlier let's start with sensory integration integration means different aspects of a system are linked that's what integration means sensory integration means you could take the sensation of sound and integrate it, let's say, with what you see. Or integrate it, that is, take the differentiated sound and link it with an idea, right? Oh, I see, there's an idea of an ocean. And the word ocean means water, which is kind of weird if you think about it. Why would ocean mean water? Well, that's the way human beings do it. You know, I can say that to my dog. He doesn't get it. You know, I mean, he gets certain things, but not that one. If I say, <laughs> Charlie, you know, let's go to the ocean. If now, if I took him for a walk there, he'd get it. If I say, go to the park, he gets that. Anyway, the the idea there is sensory integration challenges mean your ability to differentiate different aspects of sensory energy flow. All sensation is energy, as a conduit your ability to take that conduit flow of energy and then construct it into meaningful symbols is challenged. That's it, that's what center integration means, challenges, right? So now you have that problem, now you're in a body that's a human body and relationships really matter to you. So now we come to emotion regulation, emotion, i think is a shift in integration in the body and in our relationships that's what i think it is i know it's a weird way to talk but i really think it's what emotion is and then what you realize is it's profoundly physiological it's in the body and it's profoundly relational because energy flow is not limited by scholar scan so emotion is in a classroom emotion is in a body emotion is in a head sure it's all over the place what is it a shift in integration the, what we call negative emotions, sadness, anger, fear, they're downshifts in integration that lead to chaos and rigidity if they're prolonged. And upshifts in integration are joy and elation and happiness and love and connection, right? So you can reinterpret the whole field of positive psychology, which I did with Barb Fredrickson in, in this kind of way. So I say this because when we say kids with autism have emotion regulation problems, it's another integration issue. Mm -hmm. they have challenges to regulating shifts in integration that's all emotion is and now emotion in that body is profoundly linked to meaning and i don't mean like the definition of a word i mean things being significant in your life so significance is almost synonymous with emotion so if a child's having emotion regulation challenges these shifts in integration that have meaning embedded in them life is really hard Mm -hmm. so now you have two challenges right but now what you do is one of the most emotionally intense arousing things is to look at someone's face because that's where we start getting the nonverbal signals that allow our mind sight maps to start making maps of the mental state of another person that's really intense so already we're flooded with the sensory input of sound touch you know light and so we we want to we want to not get flooded with emotional dysregulation so we want to shut off relational connection not because we have a mirror neuron problem that some people have hypothesized rather we're doing it to try to survive and maintain yeah. homeostasis so yes our mirror neuron system doesn't get exercised like it should and the parts of the brain that can read really rapid shifts in facial expression tone of voice ex- you know posture gestures, all the timing and intensity, all those seven nonverbal signals, those are really avoided, you know, so let's go through them. You can do this with me right now. If you can imagine this, circle your face and say facial expressions, point to your eyes and say eye contact, point to your voice box and say tone of voice, point to your body and say posture, then take your hand and gesture and say gestures, point to your wristwatch or where it would be. And say timing and then make two fists and say intensity, those seven things, you know, facial expression, eye contact, tone of voice, posture, gestures, timing, intensity response, those are the main seven nonverbal signals. Mm-hmm. There it is. Yes, right, right, right. Right. So in the book, we have page
2: 186 in <laughs> the book go. for anybody yeah. who's following along, uh, in right. the power of showing up. I just had to do it because it's such a beautiful infographic of what you just described. Uh, the many ways that we do things non-verbally, but keep going.
1: Exactly. but And this is the way, primarily in the right hemisphere, you know, that you're going to start making mind maps mm-hmm. based on non-verbal energy and information flow patterns. That's what those are, right? That you're going to take the conduit, the sensation of non-verbal signals, and turn them into meaningful symbols. Oh, Barb is sad now. Oh, Christy is feeling interested. Whatever, you know. I'm going to make a map of your mind based on the conduit of sensation of nonverbal signals that I then construct into meaningful perceptual symbols that say, Oh, I'm seeing X, Y, or Z. Right? So, so now I'm, you know, four months old, I'm five months old, I'm six months old and I am avoiding the very stimulus, just like a kid might, uh, might have cataracts and not get the clear, light into the eyes so the brain doesn't develop what it needs to, I'm not getting the sensory conduit input into my brain to stimulate my mind-sight circuits, right? There's
0: even, Dan, there's even some research by Ami Klin that talks about the audio and the visual for social engagement. So the body um, language that you were talking about are actually out of sync for, for babies that young
1: yeah they're out of sync and it's all you know rah, you know it's just flooding them yeah so you have to tone it down and it and in a way when you think about the intervention let's say in early education for both parents to do and for you know the, the, the professionals to do is to say okay how am i going to help this child allow the energy flow patterns and mm. and, and For some reason, nobody talks like this. I don't know why. They don't. (laughs) My my interns were desperate to find somebody to do, but they couldn't find fellow travelers in this way. But anyway, you take the energy patterns of the air molecules moving and the energy patterns of light that then come into the brain as electrochemical networks that are somewhat separated, right? Visual input to the eyes, auditory input to the ears. And now you add tactile sensation too. Mm -hmm. And then you're putting it into regions in the brain that are also registering the state of the body. This is called interoception, which now is flooding the person. So they're not getting the awareness of their own internal state. They can't sync the input of auditory and visual with tactile. Uh, And so now they're overwhelmed. So now you know they're so young, they're just avoiding all this stuff because it's overwhelming. You know, and now what's happening is. They're not developing the experience-dependent learning that depends literally on the experience of taking in nonverbal signals. And then having, and now this is the next stage for teachers who didn't know about, to have what's called reflective dialogues, which are dialogues where you reflect on the mental experience beneath the physically visible behavior. So you can call them, you know, mind sight dialogues, whatever you want to call it, but you're You're basically building mindsight by saying, you know, I could see when you fell down, it was scary, you know, and you're naming the subjective mental state. Anyway, this is, I think, uh, myself, you know, what kids with these challenges really need is to slow it down. Mm -hmm. Think about energy flow patterns as a conduit that is having a lot of trouble being constructed into symbols that are coordinating across different input channels. You know, auditory, visual, tactile. If they're flooded with smell and taste too, then they're really overwhelmed. Um, Movement of the body, proprioception would be another thing coming in. Then interoception is like the feeling in the heart and lungs and stuff like that. And then now you're taking that up in the three aspects of, you know, what's called the social brain. And Ruth Feldman writes about this really beautifully the three aspects to really name are one is the network in the brain that is uh, sensing the bodily body state and regulating it so you're sensing it and shaping it that's what regulation means the second is you're making maps of the mind the mental state of another and the mental state of oneself and the third is what are called salient circuits by some, some would point to the reward circuitry, but this is really important and meaningful. Those three things, body sensation and shaping, right, body regulation, mind sight map making, and the salience that is, this is significant, irrelevant, important Mm -hmm. circuit, so it's rewarding. Now think about it, those three are, are for everybody the fundamental three networks that get integrated, they get interwoven with each other in typical development. Mm -hmm. And now what happens is those three are in a way disconnected from each other and they depend on each other to work well. And if you have a challenge at the very root of conduition of of, of letting these energy flow patterns come in through these different channels, you know, you can't build an integrated social brain when it's all being flooded and overwhelmed and chaotic or rigid. So you shut down in in disconnection or if you really try to engage, it's overwhelming Mm -hmm. and so it it doesn't reward you. So you start just saying, I can't do this. Yeah. This is just too much. So the professional and the parent need to know, okay, how do I attune to this child in front of me to know what this child's conduit function is Oh wow, they can't coordinate sound and sight. I need to know that as a conduit. I need to know what's the conduit experience. How's this stuff flowing in pure sensation form? Then I take it to the next step and say, okay, let me try to tone it down. Let me let the sound levels lower down. Let me let the visual stimulation be lower down. Now let me see if I can slowly make a construction of shared meaning. And this is where the, the mindset stuff comes in of saying, you know, here, we're going to talk about ocean. And what does it feel like when you look at this picture of the ocean? Oh, I'm scared of the wave. scared of the waves. Oh yeah. Fear. Yeah. Fear is really, that's a real big feeling. Feelings are something you have, you know, so now you, you slow it down. You don't just go on a field trip to the ocean. Maybe you spend <laughs> a long time looking at pictures of the ocean or what is an ocean and, What's the notion of an ocean? You go, oh my God, the word notion is different from ocean. I mean, you can have all sorts of fun if you're really tuning into this kid's needs because every brain is looking to integrate to higher degrees of complexity. And so when you slow it down and allow this kid to get the difference between fear and excitement about the ocean or the difference between the word ocean and notion, they're going to feel really excited when you slowed it down joined with them, figured out where their conduit and their construction stuff was working well and where, you know, as Lev Vygotsky talks about, the zone of proximal development, you know, where the ZPD is, what they can do with your help. And you wanna then ratchet that up a little bit so they learn, oh yeah, I can slow it down myself. I can, as you know, the patients I work with, you know, they say, that environment is too overstimulating for me. So I think I'll choose a small college, you know, not a big college, whatever, and fine, you know, so everyone's different, you know, and that's fine. Knowing yourself is the key to success.
0: I think the beautiful thing that you were just saying, Dan, that um, people might need to hear is that you said something like every brain is trying to integrate. Yeah. And I think for whatever reason, we forget that, you know, we do hear that kids with autism or challenging behaviors or other learning differences that they are kind of hardwired and set. And that, in that safety mode, and that we just have to take off all the expectations or whatever, but that's going to put them into out of that zone of proximal development too, because kids do want to continue learning. And through my practice, I see it all the time that growth can be beautiful if you can slow things down, quiet tone things down, so that they can thrive.
1: Yeah, and if you take what you said, Barb, and say, okay, well. What you said from a conceptual point of view is that when you slow it down and allow you to work with the child so they can differentiate you know, different things happening in them, when you just let it go piece by piece, then you give birth to this new opportunity that they've been aching to take advantage of, where Mm -hmm. now I've differentiated these components of my experience, and now they can start linking together because I'm not overwhelmed.
2: Yes, guys, I want to play devil's advocate for a minute. And maybe this is the last point we can dig into because what people will often hear is there's 24 children in this classroom. It's too overwhelming. There's one adult. How can one adult be attuned to 24 different nervous systems? So our solution will be to remove a child, pull them out, pull them over, pull them aside into a smaller class size, like your smaller classroom campus. But really it's a segregated classroom or a self-contained classroom where we can then keep things from being overwhelming. So you've got all this interplay of people wanting to be attuned, but having too many children or in a classroom that is overwhelming and people don't know what to do. So we start removing children or placing them in self-contained environments but then oftentimes sorry one more thing is that is then it becomes so rigid it becomes all about behavioral compliance we say this child just attention seeking or avoidance seeking we we've we forgotten that we removed them so that we could be attuned with them so I don't know what any of that you know, helps Christy, you
1: Christy but- that's a great it's a great point and you know it, it, it there's a complicated response in a way because know. you know it'd be like saying in a, um, in a uh, daycare setting with infants, um, let's have one caregiver right. for 24 infants. Right, and that has been shown to be really bad.
2: Right, but we do it all the time. When I know, but
1: it's really not good for the development of those infants. So you actually need a society that recognizes that certain developmental phases, like infancy, for example, you really can't have one caregiver for a nursery with twenty-four infants. It's not. It's impossible. And sometimes, you know, some of the developmental differences in um, taking energy flow patterns and making them into shared symbolic meaning, you know, when you have a number of kids who's are atypical and their differences are so significant that a teacher can't do what in another classroom you can have 24 students and a teacher does fine because she or he gives out the energy flow of saying something about the ocean and everybody gets it, Mm. you know, and that's fine because those kids at five, six, seven years of age, you know, they're developmentally sharing symbol creation Mm -hmm. and it's fine. But if you have 24 kids with different, patterns in which they can take energy flow patterns and make it into their specific thing. They need individualized attention.
0: But I so, also want to, so. I'd like to add that I love the concept of the snug Harbor that you have in your mm-hmm. um, power of showing up. That I think that classroom teachers can do a lot in regards to making the classroom a snug Harbor, like some, a place that is welcoming to all children. They can bring the tone down. They can turn the lights down. They can, You know, even though it's, yes, for one or two children that are maybe overwhelmed or learning differently, but that's going to be helpful for all the kids, whether they have secure attachments already or not.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I think, you know, we do the snug harbor as the one side and then the launching pad on the other, Mm -hmm. and everyone's going to benefit from that snug harbor. Kids will be at different times ready to do launching off into other activities, And that will vary a lot more, but you're absolutely right. The safe harbor, the snug harbor, um, you know, is a a common ground to start from. You know, what we want to do is, and it's really tough, you know, to differentiate the different um, developmental and educational needs of kids is challenging. And I guess what I'm making a vote for, and I guess I'm doing this as a child psychiatrist, I have seen too many kids where the parents have refused to put them in a special education setting because they thought it was a stigma. And those kids really struggle with self-esteem. They struggle with self-compassion. They don't feel good about themselves. And yet the kids where we have taken them and put them into specialized settings that the city provides, and they've gotten excellent uh, attunement to what their particular needs are, when they grow up, they feel good about themselves. Because they, they've learned how they can actually reach that launching pad in their own timing and in their own strategy, whereas the other kids just feel like failures. So it's, you know, I really feel for the teacher who wants everybody to feel like a success, but then has this curriculum they have to keep to. And if a kid has an atypical way of, you know, taking energy and turning it into information, they may need special learning situations. Now, that's my position as a psychiatrist, where I've seen too often when parents really resist that for understandable reasons, but to the detriment of the child.
2: Well, but I also part. think that we can sometimes, what, we, what I would love to see is the both and, so that we individualize and we deliver what children need to be the four S's, but we do it in a way where they are part of the community. They are fully included versus segregated in order to receive their needs or get their needs met.
1: Well, you're gonna have to have a super person teacher who can handle 24 kids and also be, um, have the special training it takes to teach a kid with learning differences. Yeah.
0: I think two things that I'd like to say is one that um, I agree, and I think that Christy does talk a lot to super teachers, and I think that's part of the revolutionary the revolution, but um, I think one of the issues is that kids are taken out, and it isn't an attunement focus. It's much more of a behavioral focus, and then they stay there, and we see that kids who are segregated remain segregated rather than Having uh, the attunement and the belief that children can formulate some of that, um, that integrated state so that they can go back into a busier environment or whatever, that they're ready for that. I, that. That growth isn't happening right now in classrooms across at least the United States. And that's something that I would love to see. That's kind of that both and, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, I completely agree with that. That would be a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. and a great goal to try to achieve. And I hope that these ideas, you know, of giving the four S's as a starting place of relational connection, and then understanding the mind as this conduit and constructor, you know, will be helpful. Because ideally, yeah, if you can have a kid stay in a classroom and be included, that's great. Um, You know, it really takes differentiated um, experiences in the classroom for the different kids. And that's, that's a challenge for teachers. So, I mean, I have so many of my relatives are teachers that I really feel for uh, giving them that task. I think some may be up for it and some may not be up for it.
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I'm gonna bring closure by asking you all to share one thing um, with all of us: parents, teachers, caregivers, therapists, administrators who are trying to make a difference. So um, we've talked about so many amazing things today So Dan first and then Barb maybe um, or whoever wants to go first. What's one thing that you can share with early childhood revolutionaries that would serve them in this, from what I get out of the book, is hope and possibilities. So when I read and reread your work, Dan, when Barb and I gnash our teeth and get on our podcast and rant about things we're passionate about, I always come back to But there's hope. Um, There's possibilities are endless. We can figure this out. So what's one takeaway that people can hold on to that will give them something to hold on to in this time of hope and possibility?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the science of attachment as well as the science of the brain are very hopeful because they tell us that, you know, first of all, there's no such thing as perfect approaches or perfect development or anything like that. And in fact, that the brain remains open to development throughout the lifespan. And the key is to really help integration flourish. And that sometimes takes some really special attention. That doesn't just happen in the regular course of unfoldings in a classroom. Um, And teachers should know that they are kind of the neurosculptors of the next generation. And what you as teachers provide really is going to be helping the world it'd be a better place. And so if we can support kids feeling good about who they are individually, but also realize that who they are is deeply interconnected not only to other people, even people who are not like them, but to all of nature, that me plus we equals we uh, way of thinking about the future of our identity. I think our human family really needs to consider transforming how we raise kids from a solo self as me to an integrate itself as me plus we equals we. and that is going to be a, important for parents and teachers to take a fundamental role in doing.
2: Absolutely, thank you. That's very yeah. hope filled. Thank you, Barb.
0: I love that neurosculptors. I know brain that.
2: architects, and now we're neurosculptors. Yeah. I can't wait to put that on their business cards.
0: So, really, I think what I want to leave um, the audience with is just. We didn't really get into the idea that the showing up is not just for your child and attending with the child, that you have to do it for yourself first. But so both of those things of taking care of yourself and showing up for kids in this way that we've been talking about is not an extra. We've talked about it in our world often as like, oh yeah, I, I do that or I don't do that. I'm not very, you know, it's this extra thing you do while you're doing your work, where instead of to to make it the focus the foundation the um the essential that needs to happen before the launching pad activities beautiful yeah yeah all right,
1: all right. synergy autism podcast
0: thank you for listening to another synergy autism podcast please check out my website at synergyautismcenter.com, and you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I look forward to connecting with you.